0: Thank you, Steve. Good morning. You all right? Hey, if you're new, welcome. My name is also Steve, and I am also one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. So uh, if you shout out Steve, one of us will come running, I promise. Uh, But if you're new, welcome. You are joining us in the middle of a series that has been a fun series thus far. And, man, if you have not walked in the back door of a church in a long time or this is your first time at Citadel Square, you picked a great day to join us because we're going to talk about amazing things that the scriptures have to say. We have been in the book of Revelation and moving our way through the sequential judgments of the Lamb, where the Lamb has opened the seven seals and the scroll, and the Lamb has now uh, opened the seventh seal. And we saw last week the first four trumpet judgments that are now poured out on the earth. This is a, uh, an intense section of scripture. This is a section of scripture that you wanna preach at Halloween, It's a terrifying section of Scripture. It's a sobering text of Scripture. It's, um, you know, when you move through the biblical literature, uh, the spiritual realm is something that God does not give us a lot of information about. Uh, when you read in the New Testament, you'll read places like in the book of Jude, where in the book of Jude, Jude mentions in passing that the archangel Michael is in an argument with Satan over the body of Moses. It's the only time mentioned in your whole Bible about how that is going on. When you uh, mention, when you read through your book of Daniel, you find out in Daniel that Daniel is praying and asking God for insight as to what is happening where he is and what's happening with the nation. And an angel shows up and said, oh man, sorry, I was held up about three weeks by this guy who was the Prince of Persia. But then Michael, the archangel of your people, he came and helped me and now I'm here. Don't worry about it, let's keep going. Uh, and you you have these moments when you read your Bible when it comes to angels and demons where you go, wait, what? I'm sorry, I, I didn't really understand that. When angels show up in, in the New Testament, they're... Uh, they're terrifying, they're, they're brilliant, they, they have clothes like lightning, they cause Roman soldiers to fall down uh, catatonic like dead men. Uh, so when we come to texts like this, I said, Tim, do you have any good demon hymns? <laughs> how, do you pick, how do you pick music for a text like Revelation? chapter nine well you see what Tim did Tim set our eyes and our hearts on the truth of God who is far above the rulers and powers and principalities right that's what that's what we need to know we need to know that there's somebody who has total authority and control uh, so when we see the spiritual show up the spiritual uh, when it shows up uh, we don't get a lot of information about it precisely because We as humans have a tendency to honor and worship, not God, but the spiritual. We live in a time that you may have people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm interested in spiritual things and spiritual ideas that when um, our our young adults are going through the book of Colossians on Sunday nights, and one of the problems in the Colossian church is that people are devoting themselves to to asceticism and the worship of angels. That angels and demons are so glorious, so fantastic. Even John himself will be rebuked by an angel in the book of Revelation because he's so overwhelmingly glorious that John falls down and starts to worship. And the angel says, Hey, stop. I'm a servant just like you. So we're going to face a text here today that is um, scary, for lack of a better term. It's a sobering text. It's a text that that makes you, makes you look at your Bible and go, that's in there? Uh, that's Revelation chapter 9. We're just going to look at the fifth trumpet today, and I'm going to show you why this text matters to us as a church, because as we've been moving through Revelation, we have elements of time travel, where we're looking into the future, and we're trying to apply the truths of the future into our present. And I'm going to show you why that matters to you today. Uh, why you should be aware of... Um, of angels and demons, and what is happening in a culture when we're aware of those things. All right? Buckle up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come as uh, men and women under the authority of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us. We don't claim to know what is happening in the spiritual realm. It is, we, uh, as the book of Corinthians says, we see dimly through a glass, darkly. But for these few minutes here today, would we lay hold of the truth in your word? And may we see things about you that perhaps we haven't seen before. Would we be sobered into the reality of what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation? Would you give us insight and wisdom? Would the, uh, as the Psalms say, would the unfolding of your word give light? So, Father, we come dependent upon a perspective that comes from outside of who we are. So we pray that you would give light to our eyes, that we would understand things about you and your word and the spiritual realm that perhaps we haven't seen before and that we would live wise in light of these things. Change us and shape us, cause us to draw near to you. We pray that the truth of God that is given to us in your word would be more precious and more dear to us than the things that we so often believe and cling to in this world. Father, give us eyes to see. And we come to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, grab your Bibles. You're going to need it today. I'm going to make you work for it. Uh, Revelation chapter 9. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you or take your neighbors. Uh, This is important that you have one today. Revelation chapter 9, all the way on the right side of the Bible. We stopped last week at Revelation 8. Verse uh, 12. So I'm going to pick up with kind of a transition verse in Revelation 8:13. I'll talk about that in just a minute, and then we'll get into into chapter nine. We said before that uh, the first four trumpets have blown, and the, as the four trumpets are sounded, you had uh, the heavens unload on the earth. Uh, you had hail and stars and lightning and blood, and uh, the seas were a third of the seas were turned to blood. That the Fresh water was uh, embittered and many people died because of the fresh water. And then you had a third of the green grass uh, all around the planet being uh, burned up and on fire. They were devastating uh, worldly judgments. The first seal judgments come uh, upon kind of, sort of human forces. The first four trumpet judgments come upon from the heavenlies that you saw the earth uh, in the cosmos now uh, begin to unleash uh, all sorts of stuff, upon the earth. The next ones are going to be from the bottom up. So from the heavens, and now this one's going to come from hell, and it's no bueno. Look at Revelation 8, verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We're we're not quite sure what the significance of the eagle is. It's it's enough for us to say that the eagle is flying in mid-heaven. It's it's flying above, in the very place where judgment has just fallen. And this eagle is saying, essentially, a warning. Anytime the scriptures say, "woe," Jesus has a a series of um, woes that he gives to the Pharisees, seven different woes that he says to the the Jewish teachers of his day who, who turn people away from following the truth. But when this eagle is crying out in the heavens, woe, 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 he's he's crying out that the things that are about to come are devastating. That what comes with the judgments that are about to follow uh, would cause great sorrow and pain. And it's enough for us to say that when God judges the planet, he doesn't do so with his mouth closed. That judgments are always interpreted. That the judgments that you see upon the Tower of Babel, upon Sodom and Gomorrah, with uh, Genesis 6 and the flood, are always interpreted for us. Amos says that God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his prophets. So that when the prophets of God speak about what is happening, you're able to interpret the wrath of God and the judgment of God that's happening upon the earth at this time. And in this situation, that he does it through an angel. So the angel, or the, I'm sorry, an eagle. The eagle interprets for you what's happening. So nobody is confused that this is the wrath of God. We've seen from Revelation 6 forward that the earth dwellers, that somewhat technical term for those people who refuse to repent and refuse to believe in God, who still live on the earth at that time, they know that where the judgments are coming from. In Revelation 6, they say, hide us from him who is seated on the throne and from the, la- from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. We know that this is from God. And here's this angel flying, announcing sorrow and woe for what is about to happen. Look at verse 9, uh, verse 1, Revelation 9, verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Now, uh, up to this point, some people think this is Satan because he's used that what you see is a, a, um, a pronoun here that calls him he. Uh, I, I don't think that's Satan. Satan is typically demonstrated and described in this book in much more visual and clear terms so that anytime Satan shows up in Revelation, you know exactly who he is. This is probably a, an angel, not like the previous star in the third trumpet that falls, that seems to be somewhat of a natural heavenly judgment. This is an angel who falls from heaven and now is given a task. See what it says in verse 1 I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, uh, the bottomless pit uh, is a word in Greek that is used rarely in the New Testament. In fact, it's used probably only three times, one of which is here in the book of Revelation. Another place it's mentioned is uh, Luke. You remember the story of Jesus after he makes the disciples get into the boat and go across to the area of the Gerasenes, it's called. And Jesus comes, the disciples walking on the water, it's a storm, he calms the storm, they get to the other side, he steps out of the boat, and this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus gets out of the boat, and they meet a man who lives among the tombs. And he's naked, he's bleeding, he's crying out, and he's cutting himself and it says in Mark that as Jesus steps out of the boat, this garrisoned demoniac runs at Jesus. And you can imagine the 11 who are all hiding behind Jesus at this angry, naked, yelling, bleeding man in a dead sprint. And as the, as the Garrison demoniac falls at Jesus' feet, I'll just read this to you from the book of Luke. It says this. This is Luke 8. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Probably a Roman legion was anywhere from six to eight thousand. And here's this man beset by thousands of demons. This is Luke 8:31. It says this, this is what I wanted to draw your attention to. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, the bottomless pit. It's the Greek word A-B-Y-S-S-O-S, abyssos. It, it means. Very simply, an abyss. That's where we get the the term for an abyss. Now, the abyss is mentioned here in Luke 8, uh, but it's referenced in three other places, although without the technical term. So keep your finger there and, and turn with me to 1 Peter 3. Why the abyss? Why does this place show up here? Why is this a place that demons would plead with the Son of God not to be sent there? What about this place is so terrifying? What has happened to cause demons to be in this place? Turn back to your left, 1 Peter three, eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19. In which, in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, that's interesting. Jesus, after he died, went somewhere and did something. It's the word uh, proclaim. It's not a preaching of the gospel word. It's a proclamation of victory kind of word. That Jesus now goes to a place where spirits are in prison. Look at verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There's some group of people, group of individuals, not people, that did something in the days of Noah who now exist in a place where Jesus went to proclaim his victory on the cross to them. You with me? Turn to your right. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter is all about false teachers. Those who would uh, seek to communicate something uh, other than the truth about the gospel message revealed in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2 verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is a serious thing for Peter to call out false apostles, false teachers. Look at Second Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sin. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 that there are elect angels, and that there are angels here who have fallen, who have sinned, but uh, he casts them into hell. Uh, Peter uses a term that isn't the technical term for hell. He uses the word Tartarus. In Greek mythology, Tartarus was the place underneath hell. It's not Hades. It's a deeper and darker, more dismal place reserved for only the most wicked of people and demons. So that as Peter writes this, he lets them know that there's a place incredibly deep where angels who sinned went. He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, you following with me? 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, turn to your right again to Jude. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, what did these angels do? Look at Jude, verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, you with me? Spirits in prison, angels who sinned, committed to chains of great darkness that happened somewhere around the time of Noah. Now, let's turn back to the first book of your Bible. Take a look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is a, an interesting paragraph Because in Genesis chapter 5, you have death showing up on the scene. You have these incredibly long lives that are happening in the book of Genesis. And then you have in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, you have the flood. But between the long lives being cut short in Genesis chapter 5 and the flood in Genesis 6 verse 9, you have Genesis 6, 1 to 8. Let's look at that. Genesis 6, 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, sons of God in the first, in the uh, beginning books of your Bible, sons of God are referred to in the book of Job. Job is an individual whose life happens right around the time of Abraham during the patriarchs. When Job talks about the creation, he says that the sons of God sang at the creation referring to angels. And here in Genesis chapter 6, you have angels, the sons of God, see the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Abide is a word that's a rare word. So this only happens one time here in the book of Genesis, and it's either the word abide, Hebrew is all consonants, you have to interpret vowels by the context And this is either the word abide or the word contend. So either my spirit will not remain in man any longer because of this moment of what happened here and or my spirit will not fight with, contend with man any longer. My spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Nephil is a Hebrew word that means to fall, F-A-L-L, to fall. The I am suffix, seraphim, cherubim, Nephilim makes it plural, that there are those who are the fallen ones who come down and who cohabitate with the women of the day. And these Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Literally the men of the name. That they have made a name for themselves on the earth. Now whatever has happened here, this offspring of angel and humans, you with me? This is weird. Isn't it weird? This is weird. Whatever happened here Precipitated the very next verse. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God says, no more. What well, commentators think that in this time when you're seeing the great length of life finally come to an end and you are seeing death for what it really is. Death is is somewhat of a concept in the early chapters of Genesis. You see murder and what happens to Abel, but you have these incredibly long lives that happen. And in Genesis chapter 5, you have he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. And it's as if the, the fallen angels come to man and go, I know how to fix this death problem. We can cohabitate and create something that will prevent and push death off. And God says, No more. And He obliterates the earth for what happens here. Now, what do demons want? And the question, the answer to that question, really lies back in Luke chapter 8. What do they want? They want the complete dominance and destruction of humans. The Garrison demoniac is the picture of mankind with no hope in God. And the hope of the Garrison demoniac passage is that the Holy One of God shows up and directs these demons where to go and what to do. And what do they do? They they rush into the pigs, the pigs rush into the hillside, and they desire bodies and destruction. Happy Sunday. So come back to Revelation. Here's the abyss. Who's in the abyss? The fallen ones. Revelation chapter 9. Steve, this is weird. I know. Steve, I don't really understand. Yeah, I know. Revelation 9 verse 2. He opened this angel who's fallen with the key to this place of gloomy darkness where angels are imprisoned, In chains, for what they did back in Genesis 6, verse 2 says this, 9, verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a giant, a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from from the shaft. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Now, if you have a Bible with cross references, you probably have a couple of places mentioned. You probably have Joel 1 and 2. You have that? You might also have Exodus chapter 10. To an agricultural society, locusts are a devastating judgment. Just go, go search on YouTube today for locust swarms. And you will see the devastating nature of a locust plague. If you read Joel 1 and 2, it it speaks of a locust plague that lays hold of the people of Israel. And God likens that locust plague to the coming army that will judge his people for their sin. That they take everything. They dominate everything. They destroy everything. And from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. In Exodus 10, the locust judgment is actually the one that make the magicians go, "Uh, this is probably pretty serious, Pharaoh. Don't you see that Egypt is ruined? So these locusts are are given the power like scorpions. Now I'll explain what that is in a second. You'll see as the the text goes on. Look at verse four. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. Now that's weird for a locust because a locust judgment is really a judgment that uh, happens to uh, every green tree. That they eat their weight in foliage and vegetation. Only these locusts don't touch the earth. So a locust plague is devastating because now your livestock can't eat anything. It's a secondary kind of application to where we lose food and now we experience the consequences of our livestock, our goats, our animals, our cattle, now having nothing to eat. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. That they are unleashed upon those who refuse God, who refuse the message of his Christ, who refuse the preaching of the 144,000 and like the tribulation saints of their day, refuse to believe what God has said. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. A scorpion sting is not deadly, except to like very, very small children. The scorpion sting contains a kind of neurotoxin, but they're they're by and large not deadly stings. They're just incredibly painful. And you're watching now this horde of locusts come up from the abyss who are now allowed and given, just like the four horsemen were given, authority to do something in a certain time in a certain place. See, when uh, God deals with the demonic, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And... Uh, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers I'm going to use Satan in your life for just a moment to reveal something about you that you didn't know about you and then I'm going to restore you and you're going to have a preaching ministry when the book of Job opens Job has no idea why he suffers the way he does you and I the reader know why Job suffers don't we in Job chapter 1, God speaks to Satan and says, Satan, where are you going? What are you doing? He said, I've been roaming around the earth. And God says, to Job, have you, uh, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, yeah, he's got a hedge of a protection around him. I can't touch him because all of his blessing he has from you. But if you let me strike him, he'll turn on you, God. And it becomes this tension in the book of Job. And God says, okay, you can have him, but only up to this far. And then you can have him but you can't kill him. He gets to keep his wife, he loses his kids, his wife is gonna get mad, he's gonna get marital, he's gonna have marital issues, she's gonna say curse God and die, but I'm not gonna take her away and you're gonna give him boils. And then you get 40 chapters of Job and his friends trying to interpret the pain in his life where by the end of the book, Job says, I repent, I see you now as I haven't seen you before and Satan is nowhere to be found. See, God uses the demonic for his purposes for only a period of time. Satan's on a leash. Every single demon is on a leash and when these demons are released, this locust horde is released from the abyss, they're allowed to do something. They're not allowed to touch the green grass. They're not allowed to touch the trees. They're not allowed to touch the vegetation. They're only allowed to touch those people who don't have the seal. That God's judgments are surgical. He knows exactly where they need to go. They were allowed to torment them for five months. How long are they, are they allowed to torment them? 150 days, that's it. They'd got certain people for a certain time and a certain amount of severity. Look at how the text goes on. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. These people will not fall into the hands of the living God. They will fall into the hands of the things that they worship. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, I implied the things that people offer sacrifices to are not God. They're actually demons. And in this judgment, it's as if goes, you can't touch the people with the mark. You can't touch the vegetation. You can only touch these people here, and you can only torment them for five months. And the greatest picture of God's mercy in this moment is two things one it's the temporary nature of the judgment it's only 150 days and another interesting thing is that God's mercy here is he won't let them die well why is that why is 150 days of torment a good good news Steve that doesn't make any sense But what's happening at this time is the preaching ministry of the 144,000 and the tribulation saints who are now calling out and declaring a message. There's a way to be saved from the wrath of God. There's a way to be saved from the anger and torment and torture of demons. And people plead to die. And God says no. No. We have a picture, I I, I had to find a picture of a locust plague, uh, and I thought, imagine. So there's an individual in the midst of a locust plague, and locusts don't bite, and he's trying, I don't know what he's doing, trying to hit them, catch them. I'd be, I mean, I'd be out there with a wiffle ball bat too. And they're swarming. Now these are locusts that are actual locusts that descend upon vegetation. But imagine if, in the restraint of God, they touch no vegetation and they're coming for you. Look at verse 7. You've been wondering what, is the, what do demons look like, Steve? In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, they're ready, they're not aimless. You see football players in the tunnel? They're ready, they're excited, their gear is on, they know what they're about to do, they've got a plan. They're prepared for battle, on their heads were what look like crowns of gold. It's the word Stephanos that we've seen before in this book. It was given to the rider on the white horse in the beginning, it was given him a Stephanos, conquering and to conquer, that they not only are prepared, but they have an agenda, and their agenda is the total conquering of the people that they are set loose on. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, that they have personality to them. Their teeth like lion's teeth, that they're armed. They're ready to tear and to devour and to destroy. Verse 9, they have breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing in to battle. That they're impenetrable. The word like is used in this, uh, in this little paragraph 11 different times as John attempts to capture this image. This is the best he can do. It kind of looks like this, this demon horde released from the abyss. Look at verse 10, they have tails and stings like scorpion and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Locusts don't have tails per se, but these ones do. Verse 11, it gets worse, they have king over them as the angel of the bottomless pit. Not only are they prepared, armed, with an agenda and personality, they're impenetrable. But they also have ordered authority. That there's an angel over them, a king. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he's called Apollyon. Now, why does John write that there? You remember, in uh, we did the Book of Galatians last summer, and in the Book of Galatians, Paul says uh, something that all. Um, He says, because you are all sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by which we cry, Abba, Father, right? Remember that in Galatians 5? And what Paul does in Galatians because he's talking about Jew and Gentile and the fact that Jew and Gentile are now united into one body, into one church, all because of their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And he says this to Abba, which is the Hebrew term for Father, and the pater, which is the Greek term for father, as if to say all of us, no matter our ethnic background, no matter what cultural heritage we come from, no matter what place on earth that we have lived in the past or where we were born, we all come to God through Jesus Christ and call him dad. And here again in Revelation chapter 9, he says, to Jews and to Gentiles, to black and to white, to uh, Latinos and Asians, and no matter what person you are, from no matter what area on the planet you are, you are either sealed with the seal of the living God, or demons will have their day with you. See, it matters what you believe about God through who He is revealed in Jesus Christ. That's the singular thing that I'm concerned about for you, no matter what background you come from, whether you walk in the back door of this church for the first time, whether you've been to lots of other churches, whether you have lots of other backgrounds, or you've lived in lots of other places, the concern of my heart and the concern of our church for you is where you stand with God through Jesus Christ. Right, church? That's our concern for you. Because John says here that it doesn't matter what your cultural background is in that day. What's what will matter is whether or not you've washed your garments in the blood of the lamb. Verse twelve: The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Well, what do you do with that? Do you believe that? You believe that there are angels incarcerated in a place called the abyss that look like a locust whore with scorpion tails that have the authority to torment people for five months. You believe that in your Bible. Go on the news and preach Revelation chapter 9. Go to your workplace and go, hey, I've got this great text I've been meditating on in Revelation chapter 9. You know what an abyss is? I'm about to show you. See, you've got all the notes now. You can go and lead a Bible study in Revelation chapter 9. So what do we do with this? Now, In the beginning of your Bible, you have this close alignment between the spiritual and the physical, right? You've got the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. You've got man, you've got woman, you've got a snake on the loose. You've got the angelic and the spiritual and the heavenly and the divine and the physical and the material all really, really close. And then Adam and Eve sin and they get out of the garden. There's something that guards the way to the tree of life, a cherubim, right? That there, there's these visible angels that are happening. And then as you move through your Bible, we're darkened to what is happening in the spiritual realm. You don't get a lot of information about it. And now here we are back again in the book of Revelation and the spiritual and the physical are coming close together again, aren't they? That nobody can deny that the spiritual and the physical are connected. Do you know the most common place in the New Testament where demons show up is not the epistles, it's in the gospels. It's in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus in John 1 talks about, uh, he gives this illustration, he says, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And he's referencing a point back in the book of Genesis. Jacob on the run from his family thinking Esau is going to kill him is heading to Laban's house to try to work for him for a while and he, ha- he falls asleep with a rock under his head and he has a dream and he says, there is a ladder going to heaven and angels ascending and descending. Descending. And Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of that passage because in me, the heavenly and the material, the spiritual and the physical align. So that when Jesus walks this planet, he sees things as they really are. Anytime demons talk to humans, it's always lies. What does Satan do when he talks to Eve? It's always lies. It's, it's not a true um, account of who God is and what he has done and how he has put them there, how he's provided for them. He believes that God's withholding and all, all of that in Genesis 3. But when demons are in the presence of Jesus Christ, Jesus, one of his first encounters with a demon is in the synagogue, which shows you demons go to church. And Jesus in the synagogue preaching, and an individual in the synagogue with a demon shouts out to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Anytime demons are in the presence of Jesus, they speak the truth. You have to think that the apostles, as they get out of the boat with the garrison demoniac, are going, what is this guy talking about? I mean, we saw Jesus do the multiplying of the 5,000, making them bread for the 5,000. We saw Jesus call the wind and the waves, and now Jesus has authority over the demons. Now this demon is speaking to Jesus accurately and speaking truthfully because in the presence of Jesus, the demons must speak what is true because the demons see things that we don't see about Jesus and who he is. Now, when you move out of the Gospels, again, in the epistles, all the way up to the book of Revelation, things are veiled to us. We don't see a lot of demonic activity except in one particular place. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time here and what I want you to think about because in our culture, in our time, demons show up in horror movies. Demons show up in the fantastic. Demons show up in the amazing. But that's not where demons show up in the New Testament. Let me give you some some texts. Second Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warf- warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, that's interesting Ephesians 4, when God says he gives pastors and teachers to the church, it's to the end that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Just two chapters later, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul tells Timothy, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. So where are our demons in our society and in our culture today? It's in every wind of doctrine. Now, I want to end here in 1 John chapter 4. Would you find 1 John 4 with me? This is why the demonic and the spiritual realm matter to you. And this this is how we know in 1 John 4 that in fact, demons are active and consistently active in our culture and in our world and in your life. You know, when you read the scriptures, uh, the spiritual truth that's available in the Word of God is not merely conceptual. Okay, it's not merely good ideas. It's not kind of truths that you have on your belt that you can access at any time, you know, whenever you want. The truths in the scriptures help us have a perspective on what is true reality. That's why the concern for me when I preach is not merely giving you more information for you to know, but a better perspective by which to live. You with me? I don't care that you get smart. I care that you see the way God wants us to see. One John four, starting in verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now, if I had, if I was a, I don't, I'm not on social media. I got off Facebook years ago. Uh, I'm not on Twitter. I got off Twitter because I I didn't feel like it was really doing me any good in my heart and in my soul. Uh, If I was a tweeting man. I would tweet 1 John 4 all the time. See, spirit, when it's used in the New Testament, uh, it has to be determined by context. Typically, spirit refers to the Holy Spirit that is given to us from God. But here in this context, it's used in two different ways. That spirit here has to do with the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. So when John begins, First John 4, he commands you to not believe everything you hear, read, tweet, watch. Can I say that again? Don't believe everything you hear, read, tweet, watch. But test the spirits. It's the same word that uh, Peter uses in his, um, his epistle when he talks about the testing of our faith that it may come forth as gold. It's how you determine gold is gold. You know how you determine gold is gold? You heat it up. Now, we exist in a time and a place where there's lots of winds of doctrine. And the question I have for the winds of doctrine that happen and that are communicated by news stations or social media or whatever is that they can be heated up and stand the test of the word of God. Okay? Watch what John says. Test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Are you aware of that? Do you know that there is agenda and teaching and propositions and implications and applications that are given to you daily? 1 John 5 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you know that? Do you know that when things appeal to your, you know, there are things that are logical but are not true? There are things that are reasonable but are not true. There are things that are emotional but are not true. And that my heart for you as a pastor is that you would be aware that you would not believe everything you see, read, hear, tweet, watch, post. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why is that the standard? Precisely because of what Jesus says in John chapter 1. The angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Now we've said this, we said this last week. The Son of Man is a technical term for the one who has the authority to bring about the end time purposes of God. That's why every wind of doctrine, every truth proposition must be evaluated by whether or not they believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he is divine God-man who reveals the way and the truth and the life to God. Can your doctrinal statement, would your doctrinal statement, would the things that you believe be believed by Jesus Christ? Can the things that you believe endure the blast furnace of the truth of who Jesus Christ is? Verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You want to be a good demon? You want to, If you want to go into demonology, you have to have the best doctrinal statement ever because you've got to know the best lies are the ones that are one degree off of 90. You with me? You, did you get the... The the angle, 90-degree angle illustration there? The best ones are right there. See, down here don't matter. But the closer you get to truth, the clearer you are. See, the uh, demonic encounters in the Scriptures happen in the midst of conversation. Do you know that? They don't happen in the fantastic. The garrison demonic happens one time. In Genesis chapter 3, it's Eve and the serpent talking. When Jesus is talking about getting ready to go to the cross, and Peter says, Jesus, this won't happen to you, Jesus responds and goes, get behind me, Satan. He acknowledges the frame of mind that Peter is in is satanic. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, it's not fantastic. It's a conversation. Which means as you live life in a world that lies in the power of the evil one, you must know what is true. Because it's your only hope. It's your only way to live life. You ever face situations in life that, that are hard and make you go, God must not be in control. God must not be good right now. He must not have my best in mind. It must be that because of my perspective on this situation, it must be true, and therefore I make decisions based on those things. Rather than coming to the truth of God that tells me who God is, what Jesus has done, how much he loves me, how much he's in control. This is why reading the scriptures forms your perspective on life. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What are we talking about in context? We're talking in context about knowing the truth, not you being a stud. In context, we're talking about how much you are willing to expose your life and your belief system through the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. How willing are you to allow the truth of Jesus Christ to get into your life, your thinking, your feeling, your acting, your knowing, your believing, and the way that you live? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You believe that? They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. You know, I, I may be a little bit contrarian. I know I'm not on social media. That may be a little bit of a, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of things that are popular. Maybe I'm just, you know, I'm 40, I'm about 44, and maybe I'm just a little grumpy. Okay, okay. I'll give you that. But anytime people tell me, everyone is saying and everyone is believing, you know what I say? I go, "Uh uh-huh. Because popularity is no evaluation for truth. John says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Which means the standard of good preaching is not whether or not it's popular. The standard of good preaching is whether or not it's what? It's true. I don't have to be popular, but I got to be true. Verse 6, we're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. You know what he's talking about there? Us in the book of 1 John. Go read 1 John 1. It's the apostolic truth. John has the audacity to say that we have the truth from God around which anybody who falls or rises depends on what they believe about what we say. That's why the church is truly apostolic, because it holds the apostolic truth that's handed down from those who walk with Jesus. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. Look, this text is a scary text in Revelation chapter 9. Right? It seems fantastic. It seems hard to believe. It seems like I've never even thought about locusts having faces with scorpion tails and sounding like chariots and breastplates that are in impen- I haven't thought about that at all this week. But I guarantee for you, you have thought this week about things that are not true. You've made decisions about things in your life based upon propositions that have implications that lead to applications in your life about things that are not true. In 1 John 5, it says that Jesus has come to give us understanding to know him who is true. You believe that? That Jesus has come so that you would be able to know yourself rightly. You would be able to see your culture clearly and make decisions based upon what is actually true. And that's the greatest hope for us as a church is that we're not confused. We don't have to be deceived, but we can see life rightly through the lens of God's word because he's trustworthy, because he's to be depended on, because he doesn't lie to us ever. He's totally consistent and totally faithful And he knows who we are and what we struggle with and how we live life in a world that lies in the power of the evil one. And he loves us enough to tell us what is true. Amen? Father in heaven, we give thanks for the text like this that sobers us to the reality of what is behind the veil. Father, we need to be reset in these ways. I pray now for people who are believing things wrongly about you, who are discouraged because they're believing what their eyes see or what demons say, that we live in a time and a place where the winds of doctrine are, and deceitful schemes are strong. We pray that as a church we would not be carried away But the truth of God would order our hearts, would order our minds, would allow us to see things rightly and make decisions wisely. Father, that we would cling to your truth. That the church here at Citadel Square would be, as Paul tells Timothy, a pillar and foundation of the truth that it would be our source of life, that it would be our hope, that in times where we are discouraged or despairing or deceived, that we would come and run again to your word. Father, encourage us. Remind us of your great love for us as we look into your word and shape our hearts, our minds, our speaking, and our acting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.